such a nice rain. Wasn't that a nice rain today? Soft and gentle, and it's very, very nice. Okay, let's go to Second Peter. I'm going to have you go to two places. Second Peter, chapter 2, and Genesis 18. So you want to bookmark one of those, because we're going to go back and forth for a little bit. But Second Peter 2... And Genesis 18. Actually, it would be more like 18 and 19 of Genesis. We're going to pull uh, the story out of there, which is a, a very difficult story to read through and really kind of harder to comprehend the whys. We're going to probably, like most people, ask that question in our mind. It's like, why? Lot, what were you thinking? Is the simple thing that comes to my mind. In Second Peter chapter two, the um, center of the of the chapter almost is right around verse number nine, and that's what we're looking at in this section one through really one through nine is that the Lord knows how, and this is very significant to us. The Lord knows how. To rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Two things going on simultaneously. The Lord can do both. He can, as it says here, rescue the godly and he could keep the unrighteous under punishment. In the same story. And that's what we've been looking at in this passage. So one example in verse number 5 was Noah. Noah in the midst of the flood. That's a perfect example of the Lord rescuing the godly and yet punishing the world at the same time. And the second story, which goes along with it, is in verse number 6 and 7, and really spills down to verse number 8. And that is Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot. Another set of examples of how the Lord can preserve while the Lord punishes. And it's quite an interesting picture. Um, so we're going to talk about that here tonight. We're going to start in Genesis, uh, chapter number 18, right toward the middle of the chapter. Let me see the specific verse. Um, verse 16 is where we're going to start, and we're going to have a word of prayer first. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that it is so consistent. We read... And yet we see example after example after example of your faithful dealings in both rescuing the righteous and holding the unrighteous accountable. And I pray, Lord, that uh, as we study here again tonight, you might help us to see again uh, the difference you make and remind us again how able you are that we might trust you more fully. We do live in a kind of world today where it's harder and harder to be righteous in such an ungodly place. So give us things to hang on to and learn from here tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Genesis chapter 18 is kind of a funny way to, to start a story into the life of Abraham. He and Sarah still have no children. And the Lord came to him, as it starts in the chapter, uh, the Lord appears to him, and he has a couple of others with him. There were three men, as it records there, and um, they show up. They're actually 
two angels, and the Lord himself. There must have been quite a day. Did Abraham know who they were? Probably not. When he, he met them coming out his way, he thought, oh, three visitors. So he said to his wife that uh, they needed to feed them. Oh, just make a little bread. All right. And then he went out to the herdsman and he says, now slay one of the animals and, and cook it up. Now, they didn't have microwaves, so this is going to take a while to do all this. But he does it, and uh, he talks with the men, and the men tell him that his wife is going to have a baby. And a year from now, she will have a baby. And the whole story is Sarah laughs about it and then says she didn't laugh, and it goes back and forth a little bit there. But uh, at the end of their conversation, they were about to leave. And that's where we're going to pick up the story here. Uh, the Lord actually sends the two men ahead, and he stops to talk to Abraham. In verse number 16, Then the men rose up from there and looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to send them off. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed? Now, that should remind him of a previous conversation the Lord had with him. For I have chosen him, so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham all that he has spoken about him. This, this text is just rich with all kinds of great stuff uh, about what the Lord's going to do. And the fact he keeps referring to his children is fascinating. And the Lord said, in verse 20, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. Mark that in your thinking. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me, and if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom, while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? You get right here, to get, you start to get the feel that Abraham knows who he's talking to. Watch the conversation as it goes. He wouldn't talk to anybody like this unless he was sure that this was the Lord. Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you... Indeed, he doesn't say, well, God, but will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? See what he just called him? So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous men within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. And Abraham replied, Now, behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. Suppose the 50 righteous are lacking five. Will you destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. And he spoke to him yet again, saying, Suppose 40 are found there. And he says, I will not do it on account of forty. Then he says, Oh, may not the Lord be angry, and I shall speak. 
Suppose 30 are found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find 30. Now, you know how this conversation is going. As he's talking with the Lord, he keeps reducing the number. He's probably calculating in his head. How many do I know <laughs> that might just get through here? And every time he asks a question, he says, no, I better take off 10 more. And he's going through this list. He's down to 30 now. And he said in verse 31, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he says, I will not destroy it on account of 20. Then he says, Oh, may the Lord not be angry. And I shall speak only this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 10. As soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed and Abraham returned to his place. Okay, he's got it down to 10. Is that good odds that they're going to find 10? Well, you already know the story, don't you? There's not even 10. That's frightful in a city that size. Not even 10 righteous people. Now, chapter 19 begins, and this is a very unpleasant story. Now, the two angels, those are the two that left already, came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he was to meet them and bowed down his, with his face to the ground. And he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet, that you may rise early and go on your way. But they said, However, no, but we will spend the night in the square. Then he urged them strongly, so that they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called out to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came with you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. And Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with any man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under my, the shelter of my roof. And they said, Stand aside. Furthermore, they said, this one came in as an alien, and already he's acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed near against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men, the angels, reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. When the two men... Then the two men said to Lot, Whom else do you have here? A son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whomever you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters and said, Up, get out of this place for the Lord would destroy the city. But he appeared to his son-in-law to be jesting. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, and or you will be swept away with the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. 
So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hand of his two daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him, and they brought him out and put him outside the city. And one of them who had brought them outside said, Escape for your life, do not look behind you, do not stay anywhere in the valley except to the mountains, escape to the mountains, or you will be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have magnified your loving kindness, which you have shown to me by saving my life. I cannot escape to the mountains, for the disaster will overtake me, and I will die. Now behold, this town is near enough to flee to, and it is small. Please let me escape there. It is, is it not small, that my life may be saved? And they said to him, Behold, I grant this request to you. Also, not to overthrow the town in which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the place of the town was called Zor. The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zor. And the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Oh, that's a terrible picture, isn't it? Not a happy story, not a bedtime story, right? Used to read to the kids bedtime stories, and and that one's usually not in the children's uh, picture books of all those little Sunday school stories and stuff. That's a terrible story, but it's a true story. When Peter is writing, keep your fingers there, but go back to Peter. When Peter is writing about uh, the fact that the Lord knows how, in the midst of false teachers to keep his own he said in second peter chapter 2 verse 6 and if he condemned the cities of sodom and gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter and if he rescued righteous lot oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. When we look at this passage in Peter, the thing that stands out to me, we talked several, several weeks ago about God's judgment. And the judgment listed in Sodom and Gomorrah, verse number 6, is an example that is set for everybody since then to take to heart. And yet today, if you bring it up, they laugh at you. Like, that's not going to happen. That's not true. It's probably just a fairy tale. That's not really real. Those who don't believe the scriptures don't believe the Lord's capable of doing that again. But he is, isn't he? He can, can't he? That's all true. Because he said that was an example for anyone who would try to live their lives like these did. I think that's a message that needs to go out to our country. Because we got a problem, don't we? But this is what the Lord said. Now, we talked about the judgment, and the Lord's capable of judgment, and that's true. And what Peter is setting us up for is in chapter 3, the Lord will judge. That day is coming, even when men start to mock, and they do today. Even when they say, oh, he'll never do it, they do today. The Lord will. 
And so I think that day is coming pretty soon. But the reality is, in the midst of this, he's giving example after example of Old Testament stories. Saying, see, I did it once. See, I did it twice. See, I did it a third time. And this one, Sodom and Gomorrah, is a very pronounced judgment. Now, the spiritual setting you already know, because we talked about this, and we also know the story well. Uh, when I was reading there in Genesis in chapter 18, verse 17, verse 20, some of those verses kind of pop out there. But Abraham raised a question. He said, Will thou indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? The word sweep away just keeps going back and forth in the conversation. And it's actually the, the Hebrew word for shaving off a beard. Just shoom, with one swipe of the razor, taking the part of the beard away. He says, are you really going to do it that way? So sudden, so, so drastic, are you going to do that? But here in Peter, we see what's going on actually from the impact of these people on Lot himself. It says in verse 7 of Second Peter, they oppressed him. Oppressed is the word here. That's the Hebrew word for exhausting someone by your uh, the work that you put them through. You make them weary. You overpower them. It says they were sensual in their conduct. And that's the idea, obviously, of unrestrained. There's no law to them. They just did whatever they wanted. They lived outrageous modes or conducts of life. Licentiousness is a big word, but it means unbridled lust. And that's their sensual nature. And it says that they were unprincipled men. They had no guards set up. They had no, nothing to govern them in that regard. And verse number 8 adds that they tormented him. He felt his righteous soul, soul tormented. And that's the word for tortured. Day after day after day. Matter of fact, this is a word that the Hebrews would use today if we were to take a piece of metal and bend it and straighten it, bend it and straighten it. And what happens after several of these? It snaps, right? Because of the pressure of doing this over and over and over. It's a word they used to see what was the strength of metal. They just tested it, tested it, tested it. And here's Lot, if you picture him, with his soul being bent every single day just to see how long he could handle this. Would you like to live in that city? Think about that. He's oppressed. They're ungodly as can be. And he's being, he's being tested every day to see what he's made of. Over and over and over again. Uh, matter of fact, when Genesis is recording the message in verse number 20, the Lord says that he heard the outcry. Remember that word, outcry. In verse number 20. And that outcry was that the sound of pain. The city was crying out in pain. Not so much the people, but if you personify the city, the city couldn't even stand it. The occupants were so ungodly. The outcry of the pain of Sodom and Gomorrah had become abundant. And their sins, the people that were living in it, had become exceedingly violent. Even to the point they threatened Lot, too, didn't they? They said, we'll do more to you, too, before they were done. There was men who didn't care for any rules or for any decency. Now, you put that environment, which is as bad as can be, 
and put Lot in the middle of it. Just like Noah was put in the middle of his day and age that was just full of sin, where they only thought sin all day long. Here Lot is living in the midst of it. And so let's look at Lot and let's put this in perspective, what the Lord says he can do. First of all, when we were talking about Noah, verse number 5, back in Peter, Second Peter, verse 5, he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah. That little word right there is a contrast word. It's a contrast word. When it's used of Noah, he was a contrast to his society. He was different than them. And God rescued him, it says. That God preserved him is a better word. He preserved him. Look at verse number 7. And, and if he rescued Lot. He didn't say, but, when it came to Lot. It sounds like a little thing, but the difference was simple. He rescued Lot, who was a continuation of his society. He preserved Noah, who was a contrast to his society. And I challenged you on this last time we were here, because those are one of two places we can be today. We can be a contrast to the society we live in, or we can be a continuation of it. Noah, or, or yeah, Noah was a contrast. Lot was a continuation of it. Let me show you how. All right? Let's start walking through the text a little bit here. Because Lot continued on what his society was. Noah attempted to change his society. From all we could tell, he had 120 years to talk to them as he built the ark. And nobody heeded that except his own family. We know that. And they got into the ark. Lot tried to persevere in his society. You know, it's a hard thing when it's that tough. Matter of fact, has God ever warned Lot that this was a bad place to live? You don't have to go many stories before that. And Lot was found in the middle of a war, captured, taken away, him and his family. And as soon as he was rescued, guess where he went back to? Back to Sodom. It's almost as if God had said, Lot, get out of here. And Lot said, no, I think I'll go back home. Our problem with the whole text in Peter is what? It's an adjective, and it's in front of his name. Righteous. Does that bother you? When you're reading it, you say, and he, as it says in, in verse number 6, look at this. Uh, no, verse number 7. And if he rescued righteous Lot, we stop there and say, wait a minute, that, that's not the right word. <laughs> um, foolish Lot, maybe, we might use all kinds of different adjectives, but righteous wouldn't come to our mind right away. We find him exhausted, if I'm going to use all these words, exhausted and overpowered by the mode of life around him, the lust that is just dominant in his community. He's in with unrestrained people with outrageous behavior, and he's overwhelmed by it, and he doesn't move. He sees what they're doing. He hears what they are saying. And he continues to dwell among them. Dwelling among them. That's actually an interesting Greek set of words because it means that he settled down permanently. He got the 30-year mortgage. 
All right? He wasn't going anywhere. He moved in. Now, that's quite an interesting picture, too. If you follow the life of, of Lot, here he owns a house within the city. But when Abraham and his servants didn't get along many chapters earlier, Abraham said, look over the land, pick the way you want. And his eyes went down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and said, oh, it's a beautiful land. We'll go there. And he pitched his tent in that direction. And then when the war breaks out, he's caught up in the war. And then now in this chapter, he's got a house inside the city. He's been progressing. He's been moving closer and closer and closer in the process. Now, it's kind of interesting to me because um, that kind of progression is described in other places of Scripture as a progression people can go through easily. Like in Psalm 1, when it talks about the wicked, there's an aspect where they uh, don't, the, the righteous do not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor... Stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scoffer. And if you look at that, here they are walking by. There's the wicked. Then they stop and they look at them. And then they have a seat. When they should have just kept on going. There's progression in that thought. There's progression in what Eve did as well, by the way. She first saw that the tree was good for food. And then she considered it to be good for food, and then she what? She ate it. Progression. Here is his lot, once outside the city, now inside the city. And sitting at the gate, too, which they didn't like that so much, because that was the sign of a judge. And guess what? They accused him of trying to be a judge. But he's sitting outside the gate of a city like that. And it says he did it day after Day. Day after day. This wasn't a one-time occasion. It was over and over and over again that he was tormented by their lawless works. He was righteous soul, it says there in Peter's words in verse number 8. His righteous soul was tormented day after day. He was all worn out. The, The Amplified Version says it that way. Greatly worn out and distressed by the wanton ways of the ungodly. The New English Bible, their translation says, he was shocked by the loose habits of lawless society. I, I kind of picture a man like this. He's, he's, he's losing his grip. He's hanging on the edge of a cliff. And he's hanging there as hard as he can, hanging on, and the winds are just beating against him. Knowing he can't hang on any longer, he starts to give in to the demands of this society. What did he offer those men? His daughters. I mean, we're astounded by that. It, sh- it should shock us all, right? We just say, you've got to be kidding me. What would this guy feel like in the morning? Really? That's horrid. Where would he ever reach a place like that? They say, well, that's an oriental hospitality rule. All right? I don't want to live in the orient if that's the rule. I don't. That's, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't want that. That sounds terrible, but that's the way he was. Even willing to throw his daughters out the door. 
As I was reading some commentaries, some questions came to mind, and I just jotted them down here. To what extent are Christians living today in a godless society tormented by what they see? Are we tormented at all with the things we see in our world? We say, oh, that's just usual. We're used to that. We've seen that. You know, there are times I just can't stand watching the news anymore. It's like, ah, oh, really? Is it that bad all the time? It just seems that way. Here's the second question. Does the world leave us uncomfortable? Ooh, that's a good check of the soul, isn't it? Are we uncomfortable? Here's an interesting aspect of the Greek text, which it doesn't pop up in Peter's, like when we're reading English, we don't see some of the verb tenses and how they work. But this is the way the verb tense actually comes out. Lot tormented himself. He tormented himself. The idea is, is really, it was a deliberate act. It wasn't accidental. He tormented himself. Uh, he, he, the impression made on him was allowed by him. He allowed that to go on in his life. And that raises another question. Do we allow our souls to be distressed? Do we think so lightly of our souls that we're, oh, well, it's just, you know, we allow it to be distressed in the books or the movies or the, the Internet, who knows where that might come from. But do we just think, well, you know, it's a minor thing, soul, that's not so important. His righteous soul was tortured. So one commentary said, Lot was, Lot was conscious that the situation was ultimately due to his own selfish choice. He wanted to live there. Why didn't Lot want to leave Sodom? Remember, he hesitated, right? We'll get into that in just a second. But it was a sign he didn't want to go. Why didn't he want to get out of Sodom? I say because there must have been some kind of attraction there that he figured was worth the torture that he brought upon himself. Think about it for a minute. Those who have all kinds of uh, uh, addictions and things like that, there must be something about that addiction that they consider worth the suffering they go through. So they keep it. Because sometimes I, I you know, talk to people that are struggling with things like drinking or something like that, and you say, well, Stop! There's something about it that they want more. And they're willing to pay the consequences for it. And Lot was that kind of a man in this picture. He tormented himself. And he knew he shouldn't be there. He was righteous, right? But he stuck there. He stayed there. Do you know what he lost? Let's start a list. His testimony. Maybe he thought he could make a positive impact on his town. He offered them his daughters. His testimony to us. Guess who we talk about right now and say, you don't do it that way. That's Lot. He's lost his testimony. We've been talking about this for all these years. 
And we're not pointing the finger so much. We're called saints, and yet, maybe that doesn't always fit. But Scripture says we're saints in Christ. He lost his testimony with his daughters. The story got worse, didn't it? You know the rest of the story with his daughters. It got worse, not better. They didn't trust in the same way after this whole episode, thinking, well, we'll let Dad take care of this. Everything's okay. He's righteous and all that stuff. You know the rest of the story. It was a continuation of it, even when they got outside the city. They didn't trust him because they were afraid, and they didn't know what their future would be. His daughters were raised in such a society that only solution they could find to remedy their situation without husbands was immoral. He lost his testimony with them. His wife, I didn't read the rest of the passage, did I? What happened to her? Morton Salt, right? She became a salt shaker. No, she, she turned into a pillar of salt. And we still, how did that happen? You know, they're still looking for that pillar of salt out there somewhere. It's kind of funny. In archaeology magazines, they're sending, oh, we found the pillar. There it is. That's Lot's wife. And it's like, well, it doesn't look like her. It just looks like a tall stick or something coming up out of the ground. And that's a long time ago anyway. But one commentary said, she had Sodom in her blood, she could not leave it. He lost that too. He lost his peace of mind. His soul was encompassed with the filth around it. He lost his peace of mind. And he lost his confidence in God. And I'll show you how in just a second. But Lot is not in Hebrews chapter 11. There's a man who God said go, and he stepped out by faith. Spurgeon gave this commentary on Lot. His choice of Sodom. This was a grave fault on Lot's part. He looked only to the riches of the country and not to the character of the people. He walked by sight and not by faith. He looked at the temporary temporal advantages, he did not seek first the kingdom of God. Hence, he became worldly himself and gave up the separated life of faith to go and dwell in a city and pierced himself through with many sorrows. In the end, he who sought this world lost it. So go back to Peter and read verse number 7 with me. He rescued righteous Lot. This is the picture of great compassion, as Genesis told us. God did this out of compassion, not because of something Lot had done. The, the word literally rescued is, he drug him out of danger. That's a cool word. Drug him out of danger. This is, this is how it's interpreted out of the Hebrew, okay? This is fun. In Hebrew, or Genesis 19, verse 15 and 16, he hesitated. So the angel intensely seized him. All right? A, a very strong vice grip hold on him. Set him outside the city and dropped him there. That's the Hebrew words. I think it's really picturesque. 
It's like what you might have done to a little child once in a while. Just grab them up and just carry them out and just plop, drop them there. That's what he did with Lot. He had to be aggressive to get him out of there. The Lord rescued him, but he wasn't just, you know, some soft kind of approach to this. Lot wasn't going. He had resolved with his hesitation, and literally, he delayed himself. He wasn't going to go. And the angels grabbed him with a vice grip and drug him outside his city and dropped him. And the word means they let him fall, just plop. Just let him fall. One commentary said, not even brimstone will make a pilgrim of him. He must have his little Sodom again if life is to be supportable. Lot had entered Sodom, and then Sodom had entered Lot, and he was found it difficult to leave. That's a sad commentary, isn't it? I, I really I really think about that and think, you know, if somebody writes the biography of my life, I don't want that line in it. That I had settled for a Sodom, and a Sodom became a part of me. And that's the pictures that we read today when we talk about the biography of Lot. How many things of Lot's life can you start rattling off that you're impressed by? That you say, boy, I want to be just like Lot. We don't have a very good list of it, do we? He's called righteous, though. Hmm. Makes us scratch our heads, doesn't it? How did that ever fit into that category? Righteous. Well, here's the key to it all. Ready? Back in Peter, verse number 9. The Lord knows how. The Lord's actions was not based on Lot. It's not based on his righteousness. He certainly didn't act righteous, from what we could tell. But it was based on God's compassion. That's how he operates. It was based on his compassion on him. God's compassion was a response to Abraham's prayer. Will you sweep away the righteous with the ungodly? And God said, no, I would not. And he didn't, did he? Sometimes they say, well, there weren't ten. So obviously, God didn't have to keep his word. God kept his word. There was one man in there called righteous. And guess what? God got him out. Because the Lord knows how. Abraham didn't go down to one, did he? But that's what the next number had to have been. If he was working his way down by tens, he was already at ten. And there weren't any. Christians tend to criticize Lot, and I could do that all night long, to tell the truth. I could just keep saying, this guy, what's wrong with him? But it's convicting to say this. Abraham prayed. Abraham prayed about it. He knew the condition of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he knew that Lot lived there. And he prayed to the Lord about it for compassion. Again, a Spurgeon quote. I love these quotes he gives. If Lot had not escaped, he would have perished with the men in Sodom. He could not endure them. He was vexed with their filthy conversation. How horrible then would it have been for him to perish with them? I cannot, I cannot bear to think that some people of you, as he's talking to his congregation, 
I cannot bear to think that some of you upright moral people may yet be lost. You were never drunkards, but you shall perish with the drunkards unless you repent and trust in Jesus. You were never a swearer, but you will surely be condemned as a blasphemer will unless you come to Christ. You cannot bear unchastity or filthiness of language. There is much about you that is most admirable and excellent. But even if you, the Savior says, you must be born again, and if you're not born again, and if you have no faith in Christ, you will surely perish with, as well with the worst of men. And that's the reality, isn't it? I mean, you could be a good person. You could live like, right, like a righteous man in a filthy city. And still, if you don't leave the city, you're destroyed with them. And people today think, well, being good is good enough. And I'll just be good. And I'm not like all the rest of the filthy people in our world. I'm just a good person. But if you don't know Christ, you perish with those. You go to the same place as those. That's frightful, isn't it? That's frightful. But the Lord knows how to rescue. And I love that. That's what we actually think through with our salvation. When we look out over the, the uh, vast number of men in this world, we think, why did the Lord pick me? Why would he choose you? Why would he choose me in this whole wide world? Why would he look at us with grace, with mercy, with love? Why would he pick us and forgive us, choose us and make us his own? Why would he do that? The Lord knows how to do that. And that's what's amazing. But he did, didn't he? He chose us. And that's astounding to me. He knows how to rescue. And we've been rescued. Praise the Lord for that. We've been rescued. I just add a side note. So don't go back. Sounds easy, doesn't it? Don't go back. I, I like to picture the idea that if we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and he made us alive together with Christ, then we don't live in the cemetery anymore, do we? Don't go back. We live in a very wicked world. If you've been rescued from it, don't go back. Don't go back to be like that. Don't carry on like those who are like that. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from the trials. He even knows how to drag them if he has to. And he does. I don't know. Maybe you could think right now of times when the Lord had to drag you out of trouble. I'm not going to ask for testimonies tonight, okay? But I think on occasion we've been there. The Lord drug us out of something that we refused to leave. You can be absolutely certain that the Lord knows how. Not just in his knowledge, but he is able to rescue. He is able to rescue. The Lord knows how. In reference to the godly. Here's my list I gave several weeks ago. He knows how to let them suffer and yet to deliver them in the most complete and glorious manner. His knowledge answers better than theirs would. His knowledge of their case is perfect. Before, in, and after temptation, he knows their sorrows. He knows in every case how to deliver them. And in every case, there must therefore be a way of escape. 
He knows the most profitable way of delivering them. He knows the way that it would be most glorifying to himself to deliver them. His knowledge should cause them to trust him with holy confidence and never to sin in order to escape. That's quite a list of things there. But the Lord knows how. And trust is what he calls us to do. And I'm sorry to say I didn't find that in Lot's life. Did you? That he was willing to say, Lord, I trust you. I'll just go and follow you. I don't know where you're taking me, but I'll go. Instead, he argued, even down the street. Was he not still arguing? I can't go there, Lord. Oh, it's too far. I can't do that. I can't do that. Quite a contrast to Abraham in the chapter before. But the Lord knows how. And that's the point I wanted to make all the way through this. As we aim toward verse number 9, he tests our trust. He tests our trust. And we live in a day you say, well, what's our, our trouble? Well, society's bad too. But in Second Peter, it's the false teacher. I bring it back up again, and I've been harping on that for a while, if you want to call it harping. But I'm doing it because the text keeps bringing it up. And false teachers will rise among you, Peter says, right in the middle of verse number 1. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And here we have the option to either be a contrast to that or a continuation of it. We're either going to settle down and live in that and say, well, it's just the way it is, or we're going to be a contrast to it. Because in the end, the Lord says, I will destroy them. And I don't want to be swept up in that destruction, do you? That's what the Lord says. Look at this. Matter of fact, watch this. Verse number 9, where we are, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authorities. Daring self-willed, they do not tremble when they... They revile angelic majesties, whereas angels who are greater in might and power did not bring a, revile, a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasonable animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. God does have an end for them. I don't want to be a continuation of that. I don't want to be part of that. Now, I believe the Lord saves us, and his, his salvation to us is eternal. I love that principle. I've been taught that since uh, the days I was at Moody Bible Institute, and it's been refreshing to my soul. I love the fact that when he saves us, we're saved. Isaac Stanley had a great little post on his Facebook just a, a few weeks, or maybe a week ago, it was just a simple little picture. He had a pie graph on the, the front of his picture. And it said uh, something to the effect of, uh, does, will God um, cause or let us to lose our salvation? It's something of that fact. And he's got this pie chart, and it's all blue, but a little green sliver. And with the blue, there's a, a guide on the side. And the blue, it says, no. And then 
the sliver was green, and the green dot said, no, but in green. And I just laughed and laughed and laughed, and I said, that's Isaac for you. But it's, it's 100% no. But he just put that sliver there, because everyone's stopping to say, but what about, he says, no, not even in that either. It's no in green. And I thought, well, that was comical to see that little picture. But I, I'm very glad to know I'm that. But I don't want to be drug out of the city, folks. I don't want to be like Lot. If there's, if there's false teaching among us, it's, I don't want to be continuation of it, that God has to say, i got to get him out of there. I'm going to drag him out the door. I don't want to be that way. I don't want you to be that way either. I'd rather be more like Noah, a contrast to my society, a contrast to the false teaching that's going on in our world today. That's the convictions that I come to when I read this passage. I said, Lord, what are we going to do? Warren Wearsby put this comment in his, his commentary. Our present age is not only like the days of Noah, but it's also like the days of Lot. Many believers has a, have abandoned the place of separation and are compromising with the world. The professing church has but a weak testimony to a world, and sinners do not really believe that judgment is coming. Society is full of immorality, especially the kind for which Sodom was famous. It appears as though God is slumbering, unconcerned about the way rebellious sinners have polluted the world. But one day the fire will fall, and then it will be too late. I read those things, and I say, I, I don't want to be weak. Because if we're weak, then the world doesn't believe the message. And that's what it comes down to. I, I just... I'm convicted heavily by this passage when I read through it. And I say, oh, Lord, I don't want to be a lot. So there's something for you to chew on this week. All right? We're going to have a word of prayer. And we're done. Our time is up. And when we get back to such a passage, we're going to keep on going beyond verse number 9 now. We've covered all those other details. And we can start looking at the rest of the passages. Heavenly Father, Thank you for giving us your word and the examples of your word that we might not be like those, like the lot that we read about tonight, the compromising kind, the one who settled in, the one who is a continuation of his society. Those things just kind of ring so strongly in our ears, in our hearts. And I pray, Lord, that if anybody's been wrestling with things of this world, that you would... Uh, show them that they must come to you and trust you. Even if the word righteous is in front of their name, show them how they've, they've just compromised and they need to trust you and be a contrast to the society and the things of this world. Help us to be strong in this because there's others in our congregation, folks that might not be here tonight that are struggling with things. And we need to be strong so we can help them. It's told to us here in Peter, it's told to us in Jude, it's told to us in other passages too. We have a, play, a place to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so our first thing is to be right with you, and I trust that's true. You've called us to holy lives. You've called us to walk uh, in a manner worthy of the gospel. You've called us to so many things that we want to be. And most of all, we want to be like Jesus so work in our hearts that we might be able to take this to others who are struggling and help them too. And I thank you, Lord, for being so careful 
to show your compassion and love toward us and yet to remain pure and holy and righteous in the whole thing. You haven't compromised your place toward us and may we not compromise our place with you. And I thank you, Lord, for our study tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.